Well, good morning again, Maranatha. And now as we um, prepare to dig into our text, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're going to start in verse 2. This is a really familiar passage um, for us as we come to the Christmas season. And as we read it, uh, Cameron Pickett, one of our hospitality leads and a guy that serves in about a thousand ways for the church, is going to read our passage today. And um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read this passage together. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat and we're going to pray together. God, you are faithful and we gather as your people today before your word Um, Because we need it. This is God-breathed, spirit-written, and perfect. Altogether perfect. So we pray that as we open this word together, Lord, we recognize that we need the Spirit's work in our hearts. The same Spirit who inspired it and wrote it, the same Spirit also needs today to be at work in us. That we would understand it and receive it. In faith. Lord, we pray that you would do that to us, do that for us today according to your grace and your power. And Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name, and we ask that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I am so excited to go through these verses with you guys today. Um, If you haven't been with us through the entirety of the Advent series, or maybe even if you have, um, just a quick reminder of where we've been. We've gone through these last four weeks, the kind of the traditional themes of Advent, which is um, hope and love and peace, and today we come to joy. Now, the, the goal of the Advent series was not merely to get you and I in the spirit of Christmas and get us in the mood of Christmas and get us excited to eat cookies and to wrap, unwrap presents or anything like that. The goal of the Advent series, the reason that the church for centuries has sort of practiced Advent is because it's, a, it's looking back at the first arrival of Christ. That's what Advent means, arrival. Looking back at his first arrival, remembering that there will be another one to come. And so the reason that we've gone on this journey um, through the, this series of Advent is to remind us of that as a church. And not only that, we called this series On the Earth for a specific reason, because we celebrate 
the incarnation at this time of year, right? The incarnation, incarnate, it means to come. The root of that word of um, where the, you know, the carnos part of it comes, it means flesh. That Jesus came in the flesh. He came not only in the flesh, which we might think about all the time, but he came to this earth. He brought the promises of God in flesh to this earth. This world where you and I are. This material world. And so as we study those themes, we wanted to see how the incarnation of Christ, how the fact that Jesus Christ came in true personhood, as we sang about earlier, creator come as creature, how does that change the way we think about faith and hope and love and joy? Now, if you're an Advent veteran, um, you might know that normally joy is not last. Um, It's not necessarily, obviously this isn't prescribed in scripture anywhere, but traditionally joy is not necessarily the last um, week of Advent, but we sort of changed the rules a little bit and did joy last for a specific purpose. And that is because whenever we talk about the gospel, we talk about the gospel story in a real way, the fruit of it, like the end result of the gospel is nothing else but joy. The end of it, the goal of it, in many ways we could say, the goal of it, the, 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 the thing that comes after the reconciliation we have with God, the peace we have with God, the thing that comes from that is joy. And that's sort of why we wanted to end on that today. Because joy is what happens when the work of Jesus actually takes root in our souls. Joy is what comes from that. So this, this season, this year, don't let the message of the Advent, don't, don't confuse it with let the Christmas season fill you up with warm feelings and feel good and positive about humanity. Right? That's what you get from every Hallmark movie that you'd watch this year. Right? The moral of the story is all the same. It's like, oh, it's just a magical time of year where we all love each other more and it's great. That's not the message of joy that we have today. And we're going to go through this familiar passage which has a distinct disadvantage to it. And that is that if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you grew up in the church, you know at least part of these verses. And any time we come to a passage that we've heard preached many times, or we've read a passage that we've read many times, or we see it on greeting cards all the time, we forget the power of it, and we just, we we begin to sort of um, check out and not pay as much attention to it as we should. And so today I want us to look at different parts of this passage than what maybe you are used to. We'll focus on some different pieces of it. We're going to talk about darkness. We're going to talk about deliverance and joy. If you want to write headings down on your notes, if you're that kind of person, you can write those down. Darkness, deliverance, and joy. Look at verse 2 again with me as it talks about darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. Now, who is God speaking to in this passage? Who was originally these people walking in darkness? Right? It's kind of maybe an, it's an important way to understand the promises God is making is to know who he is making them to. He's writing these words originally to the nation of Israel. He's writing these to them after he has warned them that they're going to go into a time not of joy, but a time of judgment. He's speaking this specifically even more so to Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes that were on the northernmost part of Israel, and God told them that this judgment is going to come from another nation, and it's going to come from the north. And so he calls out these two tribes by way of saying, that is where the trouble is first going to be felt. That's where it's first going to be felt. 
And he spends over the entirety, if you read chapter 8, it's not a very um, encouraging chapter. Chapter 8 is all about the fact that Assyria is going to come in and invade them. And then God transitions from that into verse 9 to go into a promise that the reproach that they're about to suffer, the judgment that they're about to suffer, even though it's just, even though they deserve it because the ways that they've forsaken God and walked away from God and followed idols, he says, even though all this is true and it's just and that's what's going to happen, I'm going to put it to an end. The end of, verse, uh, the end of chapter two, um, 8 says that there's going to be gloom of anguish. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1 it says, but there will be no gloom. That's the deliverance, the kind of work that God does. One day, the nations that are coming from the north won't come in order to invade Israel. They won't come in order to invade and to ravage God's people. Instead, they're going to enter in and worship the true king. A light is going to come to shine on those who are in darkness. If you can, I want you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, first book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. What's amazing about this passage that we just read in Isaiah 9-1 is that it's quoted not speaking about the birth of Christ, but it's actually quoted first in the New Testament where its fulfillment is speaking about the, the ministry of Christ. Not his birth, but his ministry. If you look at Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 12, it says this, Now when he, being Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this prophecy that we read in Isaiah is not merely a prophecy about physical deliverance that's going to come to Israel, although it does come and God does eventually remove Assyria from their land and give them that land back. But we realize that it's not merely about that deliverance from Assyria. We can say that with confidence because we have in the New Testament, we have right here um, an apostle guided by the Holy Spirit telling us what the prophecy meant. If you don't know this, one of the best ways to learn to read your Bible is to begin to understand that the the commentary that the New Testament provides to the Old Testament is perfect, right? And so we go to the New Testament and we see how God continued to to speak through his apostles in greater detail of what all the prophecy and all the speech and everything of the Old Testament really and truly meant, And so this inspired interpretation tells us that the ultimate reality, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise was when Christ began to preach that the kingdom of heaven had come. That's when the darkness was actually um, beginning to be rolled back. So the light, being, the light coming back in was not merely getting invaders out of the land, it was the kingdom of Jesus coming in. And so the darkness, the ultimate darkness that is spoken of of this verse is not about Assyria. It's not about physical 
problems. The darkness that's spoken about in this verse is ultimately the spiritual reality of the fact that creation, that Israel and all of creation had been brought to the land of the valley of the shadow of death through sin. That's why it dawns when Jesus says, repent. I want you to think for a moment to remember what the, what the word says about creation. That when creation was made, when God constructed it and put it together, it was perfect. There was eternal, perfect, infinite joy in the garden. Creation itself was literally just reverberating with the reflection of the perfection of the triune God. In all of his holiness, in all of his beauty, in all of his goodness, think about just the constant joy that creation had, every part of it, when God created it. Think about what it felt like to live in that light for Adam and Eve, to live without darkness. To live without brokenness, where everything was in its perfect order and place. But now, no longer, because of sin, that creation of perfection, that joy that literally would have just constantly resounded in every aspect of creation, disrupted, suffocated, and put out of the way. That's what sin does that's what sin did that's what sin does and we have to take a moment to remember that sin is that this is the nature of sin that it is such a thing that the glory the praise the holiness the joy that creation was made to display was actually cut off by sin sin is not something negligible for us The way that you and I think about sin is it's just our little mistakes and our bad habits. It's not something cosmic. It's not something bigger than us. But the reality of sin is that it is this disruptive not just to us but to creation itself. The reality of sin is that it brought us into the land of deep darkness. Us because of our sin before God into the land of deep darkness darkness this is the reality of all of our sin the ones that you think are big and the ones that you think are small it's the reality for all of your sin the ones that you can rationalize away and come up with excuses for the ones that it's easy for you or me to 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 tell god why it's okay that we have this one why it's not that big of a deal this is the reality for all sin all of it even the ones that are maybe deeply entwined with our lives the habits that we have, all of it darkness, all of it warranting judgment, all of it warranting exile for God to come in and to judge. All of it brings nothing but the valley of the shadow of death. And the amazing thing, as I said, verse 22 of chapter 8 says that there will be gloom and reproach, and verse 1 of chapter 9 says, but there will be no gloom. The amazing thing is that God looks at his creation And he promises deliverance. In verse 6. 
For to us a child is born. These are the verses that we know. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I want you to listen to that resume that God rattles off. He gives this prophecy 700 years before Christ comes. And he rattles off this resume. This is how he describes the Savior, a wonderful counselor. That word wonderful is, uh, wonder is most often speaking of God's miracles, the wonders he has done. God is telling his people this Messiah that will come is going to be miraculous. It's going to be beyond what you can comprehend. It's going to be beyond the categories that you have. It says that he is a counselor, one possessing all knowledge, all wisdom. He is mighty God. That phrase is actually amazing. Because that phrase is in, in, in the original language is El Gabor. The word Gabor means mighty. The word El means God. So mighty God, right? That's why we translate it that way. But that is a title that really God only ever uses of himself. That doesn't get thrown around about false gods. Doesn't get thrown around about humans. Mighty God. So even right there in this little phrase, God is cluing people in. Hey, I am going to come. Not merely a human deliverer I'm sending you. I'm sending you the mighty God. I'm sending you divine deliverance. Everlasting Father. Now, we are a Christian church, which means we believe in the Trinity. That God is three in one. Three persons, one being of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we read this verse, maybe for a minute, you're like, that seems weird. That Jesus is called everlasting Father. I promise you it presents no problems for us. You see the word, um, this translated everlasting Father could be translated easily as the Father of all eternity. The source of all eternity. That word Father in the Hebrew language was often talked about the one who created or sustained. And so what the scriptures are saying here is that this one who is coming... The child that will be born, the child who will be a baby, a a truly um, normal baby, fully human. He is at the same time the source of all eternity. He's at the very same time the everlasting father, which is exactly what we see in in, um, John chapter 1, right? It says, nothing without Christ has been made that has been made. Even in Colossians chapter 1, it says that Christ, that all things were created through him and for him. And it says, in him all things hold together. He is the source of being itself. There is no being. There is no existence. There is no anything without the power of of Christ and the upholding hand of Christ. And yet he's going to come as a child. And lastly, he is a prince of peace. It doesn't say prince because he's of lesser rank than a king. The word prince means ruler. He is the ruler of peace. 
He is a wonderful, miraculous, extraordinary counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father and source of all life and being. He is the Prince, the King, the ruler of peace. And the government is going to be placed on his shoulder, the rule, the dominion. That's what that word government means. It doesn't just mean that one nation is going to elect him as president. The rule and dominion of all things will be given to him. He will carry it. And his government and his peace is going to increase without end. That's one of the most amazing sentences you could ever read. That he is, he is eternal and so his government and his peace can keep increasing without end. His glory can keep increasing without end. He's going to establish his throne for all eternity. This is the resume that God lists off for this Messiah who will come. And yet there's still a hint in here that we might have missed about the fact that this Messiah who's going to come is different than what they might expect. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now when we read that, we might say, what, what on earth is the day of Midian? Why does God bring that up at this point? Well, the day of Midian is speaking to a very specific story in Israel's history. If you go back to Judges chapter 6, we don't have time to read through this whole story this morning, but you can read through it this week. I would encourage you to do it. It'll be a very unusual Christmas reading for you to do, but I encourage you to do it anyway. See, in Judges chapter 6, we have the story of Gideon versus the Midianites. So the people of Israel had once again, in the Old Testament, they had once again walked away from God and God had sent the Midianites in to judge his people. They were under complete control and oppression from the Midianite people. And then God, like he did so many times in that book in particular, right? he took his people who had made a prison on their own. Their own sin had warranted this judgment. Their own sin had brought them there. He still had mercy on them and he sent them an unusual deliverer. He sent them a man named Gideon who described himself as the weakest of the weakest families in all of Israel. That's how he introduces himself to God when God says, you're a mighty warrior. He says, no, I am not. And God sends Gideon and he first sends him with this massive army from all of Israel, but then God gets to the work of whittling that army down and down and down some more. To where Gideon is left with 300 men to go against countless Midianites. And that's how God chose to send Gideon. In that backwards and upside down way. Where he would send deliverance for his people against this huge enemy that they could not defeat on their own. He brought them there through this weak leader and just 300 guys. And that's how God broke the rod of Midian. That's how he delivered his people on the day of Midian, as verse 4 says. This is how God always delivers. Every single time. This is how God works. I feel like in the background of Gideon, you can, you can point to so many more stories in the Old Testament, right? The stories in the Old Testament, so many times they're merely these rehearsals that God is putting the people of Israel through so they would understand the Messiah that would come later. Think about David, right? God takes this young man who had never been in a battle before in his life and he sends him out to go and face Goliath, a champion of champions. 
the same sort of way that God brings deliverance out of nowhere, out of nothing. Gideon in 300, David versus Goliath, a child in a manger. If you're going to turn to Luke chapter 2, we'll also have it on the screen. I want us to think again about the Christmas story. It's a text that I'm sure you're familiar with. Maybe you've already read it this year. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or a census should be taken. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Think about that birth story that we just read. We had, I think, six or seven babies born in our church last year. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. That's why you hear so much noise in our church, which is great. Never want that to stop. But moms, how would you have liked to have had that been your birth story this year? Traveling from um, one town across the Judean countryside at nine months pregnant on the back of a donkey... Not exactly comfortable. And then you arrive there, and the word that's so often translated in should be translated as upper room, guest room, right? People in that time had rooms built onto the top level of their house to host family and and friends. And so they get all the way there. Not exactly a time to be traveling, right? If you're traveling now at nine months pregnant, your doctor will tell you not to do that. But Joseph takes his not his wife, but his fiance, right? Where there's questions around them probably of like, why is she pregnant right now? And then they get to their family's home there and there's no room for them inside. Somehow a nine-month pregnant woman did not trump the people that were in that house. And then it's time to give birth and he's born in the place where the animals are kept probably wrapped up in the same swaddling cloths that they would have used to wrap up like a newborn lamb when a lamb was born. It's not a a swaddle made for babies like we're used to. This is an entirely undignified, ridiculous way for a baby to be born. It does not at all sound like where El Gabor, the mighty God, would enter the world. And how much more, like a, like a regular king wouldn't be born this way, much less God in the flesh. You see these rehearsals like we talked about. This is 300 men up against Midian. This is David walking out against Goliath. And you're just looking at the picture that God has painted, the story that he's telling, and you're just like, this is ridiculous. And the richness of this story honestly should fill our hearts with this huge sense of who God is and how he works. That he would want to tell the story in this way. So that it would be so evident that the deliverance is coming from him and not from the world, not from man. This arrival, the beginning of the return of light into the valley of death. Chapter, or verse 8 of chapter 2 in Luke says this, And in the same region, 
There were shepherds out on the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want you to notice how God first describes the news of the Savior. What does he say there? He says, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. He didn't just say that. He was shouting that. Shouting that at these shepherds in the countryside who all of a sudden the glory of God just, just sprung upon and showed up on, right? They are literally watching sheep like they have done so many times. And all of a sudden the sky lights up with the glory of God And they get this news of great joy. Because the Savior finally arrived. The long hoped for Messiah. The one who was waited on for ages and centuries. The one who would come and be the serpent crushing seed of the woman has arrived. The one who would destroy the yoke. The one who would burn up the armor for battle. The one who would bring that otherworldly and eternal peace has come. And so creation explodes with joy. I want to remind you today that if the Messiah first arrived, and if he arrived in fulfillment of every promise, then you have every assurance that the rest of his promises will arrive too. When you see the arrival of Christ, what you see is the fact that your God is present and his promises mean something. His promises mean everything. And so when you see that he was good enough, that he is perfectly good to come and that he would send Christ in fulfillment of all these promises, then you know that the rest of the story will go as he has said. That he won't give up on the rest of his promises. That he won't let those ones fall to the ground. And his arrival, again, in the flesh, in, a, in true human form, Right, Really and truly walking on this planet means that his promises are not far off. They're not merely for some other place. His promises are real and true and in the flesh, just as he is. So his dominion one day will be plainly seen over all things. Over all things, visible and invisible, It'll be seen over nature and over nations, praise the Lord. His throne will be one of perfect justice. And because there will be finally perfect justice in this creation, there will once again be perfect peace. The darkness gone, banished away. Once again, the indestructible joy of the blessed, the perfect, the eternal triune God will be restored to this creation. The indestructible joy of God will be seen again without end. 
without any interruption of heartache, without any interruption of sin, without any hint of darkness in any piece of it, the exact perfect perfection of God and His holiness will be seen again. It has begun reinvading this world that you and I are in. And this will be accomplished, as Isaiah chapter 9 says, not by man, not by might, but by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. The passion, the, the fervency that God has for his own glory and his own name is what he stakes this promise to. So you can know that his promises and his throne will not decay. It won't decay. No earthly king can bring these promises of a throne forever without any faults. But God says, I will do it and I will promise it. That's the reality that we have to hold on to, that we have this hope in Christ who loved us so much that he would come to this earth and be the sacrifice for our sin that we might have peace with God. That he would love us enough and our God would be good enough. That he would bring all of his promises to pass and that he would send us Christ. We would see all at once that he is a God who is perfectly present and perfect to his promises. So with all of those things, rejoice. You must rejoice with all of these things. Things. Rejoice like chapter 9 says. Rejoice like people with a full harvest. Rejoice like people who are dividing the spoil. Right? When do you get to divide a spoil? When do, you, when, do, when do warriors get to split up the spoil? It's after the battle, right? It's after the victory. The victory is won. The victory is finished. The king has arrived. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So church, let's please be people that rejoice like people with a full harvest. Let's be a people that rejoice like we're just dividing up the spoil. He has broken the rod of the oppressor, the yoke of sin, the curse of sin, the enslavement to sin, the power of sin, The power of death has been destroyed. And for anyone who repents repents of their sins, turns away from their sin, and believes and trusts in this child born, this son given, all of these promises and more are true. So today, fall on your knees and receive the gift of heaven. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you must, before this king, fall on your knees and receive heaven. The gift of heaven. Because he is given freely. At great cost to himself, but freely to you today. You could have had the most sinful 2023 you have ever, you could ever imagine. You could have had the most sinful 60 years, whatever you could ever imagine. And today Christ came He's there in the manger, but he's also there on the cross, and he's there on the other side of the the empty tomb. And he says, come, you unfaithful, you who have nothing, come, see what God has done. Receive the gift of heaven today. So with all these things, there's only one command for us today. In verse 3, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, 
They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. One command for you to walk out today is to be joyful, which sounds weird to command, but I think God commands it, so I'll do it too. Be joyful. Be, we ought to be people of joy. Right? Like, that should be so true of Christians. Right? This entire passage, right, we think just about verses 6. We really just think about verse 6, to be honest. It's the only one in these, in these verses that we focus on with any frequency. But verse 6 and 7 and all this, it is God talking to these people about the deliverance that's going to come. And then he says that the fruit of their deliverance is going to be joy. Right? He says that in verse 3. Right? You've increased this nation's joy, beginning in verse 4. For, why? Why do they have increased joy? Because a child has been born and a son has been given. So the purpose of the deliverance is that this nation, the people of God, would have eternal joy. So for us, who have experienced the deliverance, we ought to also show the joy. If you've experienced the deliverance that this verse is talking about, you ought to show his joy as well. What do we do when it's difficult? What do we do when it's hard? The joy of the Christian life is not calling you. I'm not trying to say today that you are called to some kind of life where if you're sad, you just kind of act like you're not. You just smile really big and hope that your your problems go away. It's not a, a life that you're called to where you're supposed to just put on a strong, brave face. Instead, you're called to a joy that you can participate in even when you're sorrowful. We have that verse in in 2 Corinthians. We are um, crushed yet rejoicing. And the the thing that's amazing about this joy that you and I are given this opportunity to is that it can persist, it can continue through every circumstance of life precisely because it is not of you and it is not of this world. Right? This is the joy that God in his perfection, in his holiness, in, in eternity dwells in and has. The, God is not a sad God. Man, we... I, God is not a grumpy, forlorn God. Even as he is just and at times wrathful, he is still perfectly joy, just as he is perfectly, eternally Love. God is a God of joy. Because when with all of perfection happening, you can't help but be joyful. And so the joy that you and I are like welcomed into today is this joy of God that we're given the opportunity to participate in. Even when our circumstances are completely broken, even if today you have no joy in your circumstances, this could be the, the hardest Christmas you've ever walked through. You may have lost more loved ones. You may have more division in your family. You may have more problems going on. And yet, you have above you and all around you the perfect, the perfect joy of God that is available to you. Not in a way that just kind of whitewashes the sorrows away, but instead a joy that can persist right along the sorrow and and overcome it and crush it. This is one of the greatest ways for you to show your family and your friends that all of this is true. 
I, I really believe this. There, is very, there are very few ways that your life can demonstrate the reality of Christ than if you are a person of joy. You are in a joyless world. So when you, when you show this, you're showing people this is not just some feel-good holiday. You're showing people that the baby didn't really stay in the manger. You're, not, you're showing them this isn't a fairy tale, that all of this is true. So be people marked by joy, of the joy of God in a joyless world. And this joy, again, it's not merely emotion. This joy is the habit of rejoicing in all things because of the presence and the promise of Jesus. It's a habit of rejoicing in all things because of the presence and the promise of Jesus. And I said habit of rejoicing. Maybe it's cheating to use the word rejoicing in a definition of joy. But that word rejoicing literally means like to bring, to cause joy, to bring joy back in. And so it's a habit for us because, man, when life like destroys us, we rejoice. We bring joy back in. Why? Because we have a present God with perfect promises. So we can have joy back in. There will be nothing like your ability to show this the truth of this, this gospel to the world than if you have this joy. There will be nothing like it. Nobody wants to come and visit a church filled with people that are glum and mournful and um, sullen and angry and irritable. Who, who would want to walk in and be like, oh, I want to be a part of these people. I want to, I want to get to know them. No one wants to, to believe the testimony we have about Christ when our homes are filled, whether it's filled with kids or not, but whether our homes are filled with irritability and anger and discontentedness or they're filled with joy. The joy of the Lord will absolutely be your strength. The joy of the Lord will absolutely be a way in which God shows his truth through you. Because we can have this joy. Because if this holiday shows you and me anything, I want you to think about this. This holiday shows you that your Savior is present and his promises are true. This holiday shows you that this Savior is present with you. In the the deepest parts of sorrow and in the, the greatest mountaintops of joy, he is present with you. He could have saved you and me from far away. He didn't. He came close. He's present. And all of his promises are true. And one day we will see all those promises come true. And there will be, I promise you, a smile on your face that day. There will be joy in us that day. So let's live with that joy today. Because to us, a child is born, for us, a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, church, will accomplish this. For this is the Savior, Christ the Lord. God, we thank you today that you are a God who is present with us. God, in all of our
in all of our weakness, in all of our sorrow, in all of our joy, in all of our strength, you are present with us. Lord, may your presence give us joy today. May there be an otherworldly joy about us as Maranatha, for the people around us, for our family and our friends to see and behold Christ. We thank you that he came today to set us free. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.